Hello friends and welcome back to the Vet ECC podcast. Uh, I put out a little survey recently on Instagram and Facebook just to ask what sort of cases and diseases people found the most intimidating. Um, respiratory disease was definitely at the top of the list across the board uh, and I would agree. It's a scary thing to treat and it's a really horrid thing to experience if any of you who have ever had any asthma attacks or um, panic attacks or anything of the sort, you definitely appreciate the anxiety that comes with it. So uh, with that in mind, we are rolling into our Foundations episode number two. Uh, this is the approach to the patient in respiratory distress and what to do in the first five minutes. So if you are new to small animal emergency practice or small animal practice, um, either because you're moving out of general practice or transitioning from large animal medicine, uh, or if you're just looking for a bit of a refresher on the basics, then this series is for you. Uh, if you are looking for a more in-depth discussion about respiratory disease, then I would suggest you listen to episode number three of the podcast with Noah Jones, where we go uh, a bit more into some of the, the complexities of respiratory disease or subtleties. Um, so yes, I would agree with all of you that treating respiratory distress is scary for both me, uh, your team and the patient. So the first part of our job is just minimizing patient stress while trying to assess them as best as we could. The last thing these guys need is lots of handling, a full physical exam, lots of people looking at them, lots of noise, etc, etc. So, for example, if you have a cat, it's much easier to assess them while they are still in their carrier and experiencing minimal stress. Um, once a patient is in the clinic, their respiratory rate is going to be artificially raised anyway, so it can be challenging to get an accurate resting respiratory rate in a patient who is being manhandled and pokes and prodded around. So giving them a bit of time just to come to terms with the fact that you've just moved them about, you can either take the lid off the carrier or just look through the door. Um, some of them can be quite challenging, especially if the cat's black and wadged all the way in the back. So sometimes opening the door or taking the top of the carrier off um, can go a long way. What you do not want to do is go and tip these guys out of the carrier, um, although I appreciate some of the um, carriers are sealed in a way that you cannot take the top off. So um, I suppose in very rare occasions that is necessary, but it's it's a last resort. Um, so you want to look at these guys from a distance, sort of from across the room, take a respiratory rate and eyeball them. Is there any inspiratory efforts? Is there any expiratory efforts? Is there any abdominal efforts? Uh, is are there any abnormal respiratory sounds? Are they wheezing, gurgling, coughing? Um, any strider or stertor? Are they sort of pouring pink foam out? Um, and and that's really going to be the beginning of what we call our primary survey or our major body systems assessment. So it's a brief assessment of the most important information you need to treat this patient in extremis. So after you've gotten the respiratory rate, we move on to seeing if you can't get a heart rate, um, maybe some pulse quality, uh, mucous membrane color, capillary refill time, and your full exam can come later. So don't worry about that right now. Really, eyeball, get some vitals, 
see what's going on. Um, and now you're also in a really good position to provide a bit of flow by oxygen. Some patients will tolerate a mask and that might concentrate your oxygen a bit better, but we've already talked about how we want to minimize stress. So shoving a mask in their face is not always the best way to do that. If you can get them to tolerate a mask, um, go for it because it might concentrate the oxygen um, in their area a bit better. Um, on the flip side, if it's a dog and they're panting, it might cause a bit of rebreathing and a, and a bit of um, hyperthermia in the short term. So if that doesn't work, a bit of flow by, ideally not directed straight at the nose because that can be quite disconcerting as well. And also little things like flushing the oxygen line, especially if you're using something from an anesthetic machine. Um, isoflurane and sevoflurane are both really smelly so taking the time to flush the line so that when you're smelling it it just smells like normal clean oxygen uh, is going to be a lot nicer for your patient than some smelly gas so uh, sometimes perpendicular to the nose is a bit nicer than directly in to the nostrils um, anywhere from I suppose three to four to five liters per minute um, even a bit higher if you can and if it's well tolerated so um, maybe get them out of the carrier, start some oxygen, and then you can go ahead and get some vitals. So feel the pulses, what's the pulse rate, what's the pulse quality, eyeball the mucous membranes, because a lot of these guys will be panting, and if they'll tolerate you touching the face to get a capillary refill time, then go for that as well. But a lot of patients in respiratory distress really resent having their face touched, just because they're so focused on their breathing that if you're trying to interfere with that it, it can make things worse so um, if you have access to ultrasounds and if you are proficient in ultrasounds then this may also be a good time to have a, a cheeky peek with the ultrasound and do something like a t-fast or a, a vet blue which essentially is going to add to your physical exam um, it's not going to replace it you still want to try and auscultate the chest and the heart um, but ultrasound is very well tolerated it's very low stress and it can give you a lot of information and rule in or potentially rule out things like pleural effusion pulmonary edema pneumothorax pericardial effusion uh, cardiac tamponade etc etc what you do not want to do is take an x-ray right now because um, restraining this patient, putting sandbags on them um, is a really great way to kill them. And it's not going to change what you're doing in the short term. It's unlikely to benefit you right away. Um, and it's probably not going to add a tremendous amount to your stabilization. So really what you're trying to do is with your physical exam, with some ultrasound, to figure out is there some disease in the lungs, meaning the actual lung parenchyma, is it around the lungs in the pleural space, um, is there a potential cardiogenic component, um, or is there an issue outside the thorax, like you've got a, a massive ascites or tumour or something that's pressing on the, the um, diaphragm to the point that breathing is challenging. Uh, it'd be quite hard to figure that one out because, again, you don't want to go palpating the abdomen and, and doing all of this right away, but that can come later. Um, 
As for temperature, whether or not you decide to take a rectal temperature or not depends on the patient and if they'll tolerate it. Uh, we know that patients with cardiac disease like uh, congestive heart failure, pericardial effusion, they're going to have a low rectal temperature because they've got poor perfusion out to their periphery. If you find a patient both with respiratory distress and hypothermia, it does add suspicion that there is a cardiac cause to your issue. If you're really anxious, if you're panting a lot, if you're breathing hard, you figure that effort's going to go to increasing your temperature, at least on the high end of normal or normal. If it's low, that means you've got some perfusion issue out to the periphery and um, typically it does lend towards them having some sort of cardiac output issue or, or perfusion issue. So um, it's not worth restraining the patient. If they're resentful of this, um, you can really push them over the edge into respiratory arrest, cardiac arrest. Um, Tony Johnson, he's a, a criticalist out of Purdue and he's got a, a point system that I really like for cats. And um, typically the closer you get to five points, the higher risk you have of killing your patient. So um, you get one point for the cat going in the carrier at home, you get one point for the car ride, one point for the physical exam, one point for an IV, etc, etc. So um, the more you do, the more stress you cause, the more potential respiratory effort and oxygen demand you cause, and the closer you push them to arresting. So minimal handling is going to be the best approach. Do as much as you can, but do not push these patients. Um, now, once you've done your primary survey, you need to decide if this patient can stay conscious or if you need to take control of their airway and breathe for them. So, for example, if you have a brachycephalic French bulldog, English bulldog, uh, pug, etc., and you're thinking about some sort of upper airway obstruction, maybe even something like laryngeal paralysis, or if your patient just looks exhausted, like they're really breathing with all of their intercostal muscles, they just look like they're about to, to pass out and go into respiratory arrest, then um, sometimes what you need to do is just do a rapid induction and intubate these guys. Um, some will advocate the use of propofol, uh, but you need to be very aware that it is a fair respiratory and cardiac depressant. Um, you could use a, a combination of ketamine and a benzodiazepine like uh, diazepam or midazolam. You could use Atomidate if you have access to it or Alfaxalone, which is a very similar drug to, to propofol but potentially less cardio-depressing. So whatever you're comfortable with is, is most important. And even if there is a period of apnea after induction, the goal is that you're going to induce these guys, intubate them, and then you're going to be breathing for them, at least until they're breathing comfortably. Um, if there is upper airway obstruction or there's lots of swelling and there's a massive hypothermia, then even just an hour or two under injectable anesthesia with them breathing room air, can allow you some time to get the swelling down, get their temperature back to normal, um, manage their carbon and their oxygenation. Um, but if you're going to make the decision to 
induce and intubate, then you need to have an exit strategy. If you are on your own, if you're massively busy, if there's lots of other confounding factors that mean you're not going to be able to care for this patient properly over the next X amount of time, um, then maybe what needs to happen is you intubate them, you use something like an amber bag, which is portable, and you transfer them to another facility where they can get definitive care. Either way, whatever you're doing, um, you do need to get informed consent from the owner. That may be a very quick conversation, but you do need to discuss the risks and the benefits for these patients because um, if you go ahead and give them drugs and put a catheter in and intubate them and you haven't discussed any of this with the owner, you can find yourself in a sticky situation. So, say for example, we do not need to intubate our patient, then now is the time to give a bit of sedation or some analgesia. And I say that and we recommend this because respiratory disease is scary. There's nothing really more primal and fear-inducing than, than struggling to breathe. So the fear and anxiety that come along with it really do exacerbate your, your patient's respiratory distress. So giving a bit of sedation can just help bring them away from the edge, typically without compromising their ability to breathe significantly. And if you figure all of this trembling, all of this hard breathing, all of this stress is probably increasing oxygen demand systemically by knocking them down a level, we might reduce their global oxygen demand. So my personal choice, usually something like butorphanol, um, possibly with a bit of midazolam, depending on how I feel about the patient. That's given intramuscularly. I typically don't place an IV right away unless I feel like they'll, they'll really tolerate it. If I've got a high suspicion of something like congestive heart failure, so someone like a, a small dog with a murmur or a history of a murmur or uh, a hypothermic cat with crackles or, or pleural effusion, then you can also give a, a diuretic like furosemide at this time intramuscularly. Um, don't put this all in the same syringe, it will um, not look pretty, um, but you can typically mix your butorphanol and benzodiazepine into a single syringe. So um, for me, dose-wise, uh, I go quite high on the butorphanol to start with, 0.3 to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. Um, the same thing for the midazolam, usually 0.3 on the lower end. Um, and if we're talking about diuretic, uh, my usual starter is furosemide, uh, Lasix. And for dogs, I'll give anywhere from 4 to 6 milligrams per kilogram. Um, for cats, I go on the lower end of 2 milligrams per kilogram. So um, in dogs, that might be a bit higher than you're used to hearing. Um, that's just from conversations with, with cardiologists. And don't forget, you can always give more. So um, you can give them enough to, to get them over the edge or get them away from the edge, get them a bit more stable and allow you to place an IV. Um, definitely don't give anything subcutaneously. There's going to be very poor perfusion to the periphery, typically. Um, and the absorption is just not going to be great. So either intramuscularly or if you have a catheter, intravenously. Once you've got a bit of sedation on board, you've done your primary survey, you've had a brief chat with the owner, maybe you've got an IV and maybe you haven't. Um, I usually put a bit of eye lubrication in at this time because usually their next stop is going to be 
uh, an oxygen cage or an oxygen tent. Um, whatever you do depends on your setup and not everyone will have an oxygen cage. So um, if you've got one of the gorgeous oxygen cages um, with um, humidity management and CO2 monitoring and oxygen monitoring and um, uh, CO2 scavenging and temperature control, then oh, I'm jealous. Um, if not, if you're dealing with uh, the buster tents or, or something smaller, first thing you want to do is really crank up that oxygen level to about 10 litres per minute or a bit more to get that environment um, enriched and loaded with oxygen. Um, you've got to be really careful about temperature and CO2 management in these tents because if you create a sealed system, especially with the plastic, all of the CO2 that they are exhaling has nowhere to go. So that's going to build up. They're going to inhale it or rebreathe it. It's going to add to their respiratory distress. If they're already hypothermic or on the high end of normal, all of the temperature that they're producing has nowhere to go. So you can very quickly end up with a hypothermic and a hypercapnic patient quickly, um, both of which will, will cause them to deteriorate. Um, I will attach a paper um, or a letter to the editor into the show notes, which has a really good discussion on carbon management. But ideally, you want a high flow of oxygen and you want a bit of ventilation. So opening the cage a little bit to allow some CO2 to escape. Um, you can also buy CO2 monitors, temperature monitors, oxygen monitors, etc., etc., um, that just help you better assess the environment. And the, the true hope is that this is a, a temporary situation. But if you've got a bigger patient, a bigger cat, a terrier or a mid-sized dog in one of those tents, you need to be on top of it because they will get very hot and hypercapnic quickly. So don't fall into the trap of oxygen, however, because although oxygen in the short term certainly cannot hurt, there are plenty of situations where the patient will not get better and those are the ones with a pneumothorax, pleural effusion or something like a pericardial effusion. Until you treat that underlying disease they are not going to get better. Um, I suppose something like a diaphragmatic rupture after trauma fits into that as well. So oxygen is not the place you shove a patient and forget about them because you will get patients that will die. Monitor them closely Think about what your diagnostic and workup plan is going to be. Talk with the owner again. Come up with a plan. Come up with an estimate. And then once they've had some time to marinate in oxygen, maybe now you're going to be able to do a bit more of a thorough physical exam. Maybe now you're going to be able to do some ultrasound or, or maybe even some x-rays at this point. But hopefully with your physical exam, with some ultrasound, you'll be able to, to have a pretty good idea about what is going on with them. Something like a pneumothorax on auscultation, there will be reduced or absent lung sounds dorsally because air floats. If you've got absent lung sounds or dull lung sounds ventrally, something like a pleural effusion or hemothorax, pyothorax, chylothorax, liquidothorax or whatever kind has to be on your list. But just because you hear lung sounds doesn't necessarily mean that you've ruled those things out. I suppose it means that you've lowered your suspicion of them, um, but you can, can still get some, some pneumothorax and some liquidothorax 
um, with some fairly normal lung or heart sounds. So do be wary of that. And I think imaging is always required in these patients. Um, whether you do blood testing at that point is up to you. If you're going to be using diuretics, it's a very good idea to get baseline electrolytes and renal values. So uh, a urea and a creatinine and getting your IV catheter in at, at that point is important. I suppose and as as you see more of these, your pattern recognition will get better, but don't get tunnel vision, don't get focused on the first thing you see, and don't fall into that, that trap of um, assuming the patient has a disease. Get familiar with your most common causes of respiratory distress, so congestive heart failure, pneumothorax, pleural effusion, pericardial effusion. Um, and the one thing to note about pericardial effusion is that for a number of pericardial effusion patients, the only clinical sign is vomiting, which is why a physical exam is so important because you might feel that those pulses are a bit reduced. You might feel they're a bit tachycardic. Maybe the heart sounds are a bit dull. So if you've got a vomiting patient, things don't look quite right, don't ignore that gut feeling because oftentimes um, your gut is leading you in the right direction or at least flagging up somewhere in your subconscious that, that something doesn't quite fit what you expect in this patient. Um, and, and don't underestimate your ability to eyeball a patient either. There was a study recently about triage in human emergency rooms and they had either a scoring system um, or a nurse eyeballing system. And they found that more sick patients were picked up more effectively um, by the nurse eyeball system than with a, a objective scoring system. And I'll see if I can find that and, and pop that up as well. So um, also other conditions like pulmonary hypertension, which can be quite challenging to, to diagnose and treat pulmonary thromboembolism, upper airway obstruction, collapsing trachea, pneumonia, asthma attacks. And, and don't forget your non-respiratory lookalikes. So um, things like pain, trauma, acidemia, anemia, any sort of oxygen carrying issue, um, hypothermia, abdominal contents, pressing on the diaphragm, um, Pickwickian syndrome. This, this can happen in ferrets where you get a lot of fat build up in the thorax and there's just not much room for the the lungs to expand drugs um, neurological disease any other metabolic derangements um, i suppose the the point is that you really need to be flexible and you need to be open-minded and you need to get um, get away from tunnel vision and and that sort of grounding biases so um that is a, a very basic run down and then of course will not be exhaustive and um, unique for every patient but what I want to emphasize is that I still get stressed out with these patients I 100% appreciate that they are scary to treat but if you can go through scenarios in your head and think about what you might do for certain situations you're going to be a lot more prepared to tackle these guys when they walk through the door um, and that's something to be said for preparing your environment as well. And if you know that a patient is coming down in respiratory distress and you know roughly the, the species and the breed, then 
having supplies available, like having your drugs out on the counter, um, having something like endotracheal tubes, laryngoscope, ties, oxygen, face masks, IV placement, um, maybe some suction just for fun, um, thracocentesis equipment. Um, at the end of the day, thracocentesis is a diagnostic procedure, and if you have a higher suspicion that your patient has pneumothorax or pleural effusion, you don't need to go to x-ray to confirm that. Do a thracocentesis. One, it's going to give you the diagnosis you need. Two, it's going to stabilize your patient. Um, and I, I can't emphasize enough, if you are going to refer a patient do not send them with an active pneumothorax or a pleural effusion. The chance of you doing damage is very low. You might poke the lungs, you might poke the heart, but that happens with great frequency on pericardial effusion um, or pericardiocentesis anyway. We do take FNAs of lung masses, so don't be afraid to stick a needle in the thorax. You can use a butterfly catheter if you're scared uh, or concerned about the size of the patient or causing some damage, then you can always use uh, a larger bore IV catheter and just once you go through the thorax, use the silicon and leave that in there and then it's going to be atraumatic. It's hopefully going to be thick enough to, to withstand the pressure from the intercostal muscles um, and you can drain and move that around with, without causing too much effort. Um, some of the, the pleural effusions can be very chunky and fibrous so don't be afraid to flush them a little bit and move your needle or your your stylet around um, or your catheter around rather to to try and pick up little pockets and of course if you have ultrasound it makes the job a thousand times easier because you can actually visualize the pocket and and go right in there i would not attempt it on a conscious patient before giving some sedation or some pain relief and even something like methadone goes a really long way to getting these guys to calm down um, if you're worried that they're panting a lot and you're worried about your opiate causing panting you can always give some fentanyl and some midazolam because it's less likely to cause panting something like three to five micrograms not milligrams micrograms per kilogram iv is a, as a little bolus and that will buy you 20-odd minutes of, of time to get your procedure done, and then you can move them on to something more long-lasting if need be. So that is the first five minutes. That is how I like to spend my first five minutes. Assess from a distance, get some vitals, do a very brief auscultation, cheeky ultrasound if I can, sedation, plus-minus diuretic, and then into the oxygen cage to marinate and to calm down. Once they are calmed down, you can move on to your more definitive diagnosis and treatment. If the patient is actively crashing in front of you, you may need to do an emergency intubation or an emergency pericardiocentesis or thoracocentesis. So be prepared, have your equipment, take a deep breath, take a step back, think about the situation and then just get it done um so thank you for listening i will put some of the articles that i discussed up in the show notes for you so you've got a link to those 
Um, if for some reason you cannot access the full paper, shoot me an email um, via the website vetemerge.cc um, and I'll see if I can't get you a copy. Otherwise, greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes or elsewhere um, purely to let me know if you like what's going on um, or not and so others can find the podcast and hopefully benefit from it as well. Um, we also are on Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. So again, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.